0: So, what shall we discuss? with your questions?
1: One thing we were speaking with Krishanya about, and I was thinking about it myself also, is that generally when we speak about Srimad Bhagavatam, we
2: emphasize the first canto, we speak about that, and then we speak about the tenth canto, generally. And so. You do?
0: I was more noticing that in all discussions generally both with you and otherwise also it's like these two are very much emphasized and the others are much more scarcely mentioned I I feel. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking is it what, what's the significance of, of the other canters for us or well. Well they're all significant But I think that the first canto may be mentioned more often because, at least with regard to speaking to a general audience, then, um, who's perhaps unfamiliar with the book, which I do sometimes, then um, the the storyline of the Bhagavatam is... It's a build-up to the speaking of Sugadev. Maharaj Pariksha Pariksha is cursed, and... So on and so forth, and um, and so that's kind of a way of talking what the book's about. There's a king, and there's a there's a boy a mendicant, and there's a curse, and the boy answers the necessity of the hour with a beautiful discussion about what to do at the time of death, and and so forth, and the answer is given in the tenth canto. <laughs> I mean, the answer is given later on in the first Kano in one sense, but it's given very dramatically in the tenth canon, when the gopis give up, they die socially for all intents and purposes and leave their homes and families and meet with Krishna and this is the message of the Bhagavatam. this is what you should do with your life, which is a social death, an ego death. And so, anyway, for that reason first candle, maybe I may mention it more often. And of course, the tenth candle contains Krishna, the story of Krishna himself. Oh, excuse me. But um, the other candles are significant. The second candle, Sugadeva begins to speak. It's very beautiful. And um, there are the ten subjects of the Bhagavatam are mentioned also in the second chapter. ten second chapter of the 10th chapter must be the second chapter 10th verse begins the description of the ten subjects of the Bhagavatam which are spursed out over all of them basically nine of which are topics that um, are sheltered in one Krishna is the shelter so the point of studying the sheltered topics is that one gets some idea that the shelter is not an ordinary guy so to speak as he might appear to be in the tenth canto he's behind the creation and uh, in the secondary creation he's the he's the maintainer he's the source of the avatars avatars are one of the sheltered topics in the way of Understanding that Krishna is the source of the avatars, the ashrita, the sheltered topic here is the avatars, the ashraya is is Krishna, the bonum. So the dissolution of the world, mukti, these are all different subjects of the Bhagavatam that are all huge subjects. And the point is they're sheltered under Krishna. So, second canto is significant, as I said. Sukadeva begins to speak. Third canto, fourth canto, fifth canto. Third canto, you, know, you get into uh, creation in some detail, and and so you have the, the sankhya, you know, understanding of the of the time how the world evolves. I would imagine that would be pretty cutting-edge science for the time, if you will, although I'm quick to say it's not really a science book, it's not what it's dealing with. Therefore, that's part of the message of the Bhagavatam, being a Purana, in other words, it's couched, that's part of what you find in a Purana, along with lists of names of the uh, dynasties and so forth, and... It's a part of a Purana. So this book has been couched in a Puranic setting. And originally, as you know, it was spoken in four verses from Krishna to uh, to Brahma. So the upon writing it put it in a Puranic setting. So some things are there to uh, create that setting. Then they're of interest as well. The, excuse me, the Sankhya theory of kind of a I don't know if you would call it really an evolution. It's not so much of an evolution as much as things expand and they don't morph, if you will, from one into another. For, what would you call it? A generation or something? A, a emanation. Emanationism. Yeah, from the source and emanates. You know, there's the Perdon. Glancing at the Perdon impregnates it consciousness it's still and then it causes a huge explosion if you will that consciousness then looks at and identifies with like we do now you look at the world and wow there's a lot going on i don't know i'll try to make it to the retreat but uh, there's a lot going on out here that's the impression you get and and, you know the The thrill of living in the city or something, the big apple or something, you know, it's all, you're on top of it, it's all, something's gonna, something's happening, it's about to happen or something like that, that's like material life. So this, as it's, as we experience that now, so that's the genesis, if you will, of the world, this consciousness hits this predominant modes of nature in in an undifferentiated, equi-balanced state. And sets that into motion, and, and then the consciousness that looks at that and thinks, it identifies with it. A hunkar is produced, mahatatva, and so forth. And then, and then there is a necessity, if you will, on the part of that consciousness to function in relation to what it sees and identifies with. And based on that necessity, then there's the emanation, if you will of the sense objects and the senses that correspond with them. These are all necessities of consciousness. So it's a consciousness-driven emanationism, (laughs) as explained in the Bhagavatam. And um, it's not that far-fetched in in a way. I mean, from a point of view of modern science, that it's consciousness-driven and I don't think like that and so forth. And as far as anyway, ancient um, explanations, it has the most credibility in the, in the modern world. I've known some scientists, secular scientists have studied that uh, extensively and found it of interest and so forth. So anyway, creation, calculation of time from within the atom, uh, it's a little abstract. Uh, you'll find that that there also but um not one of the parts of the Bhagavatam that I can't say I'm that well versed in or that interested in, but these are parts anyway that make it a whole, give it a Pranic setting and so forth. And then the fourth canto, you yeah, have a little bit more of that. You have third canto also begins the story of Jayan Vijay, which is a huge story, the, the, the appearance of Nisringa, which we talked about a little bit the other day. When somebody asked a question, it begins there in the third canto. Maitreya is speaking to uh, who is it? To Vidura, and uh, there's uh, considerable emphasis on Krishna there. We see also, as we passed through, as I said the other day, Sukadev, Sutta Gosami, Sukadev. Maitreya, these are all principal speakers of Bhagavad. They're all Krishna devotees. They're Ishta, Devatas, all Krishna, the principal characters, Prahlad even. If we look carefully, we see repeatedly in the text, he's a devotee of Krishna. And Srinya Dev is a form of Krishna, if you will, that comes to remedy the situation, although he's worshipping Krishna in Vaidhi Bhakti. Then uh, you have the famous uh, and the long story of Puranjan in the fourth canto also, which is interesting. And the fifth canto, of course, everybody's familiar with that one. And uh, they tend to avoid it, but it's really nice in that um, kind of the reflection upon it in the sixth canto is uh, very encouraging to the devotees. After the whole show... If you will, as Sukadev clarifies, is what the Puranic historians have, how they have thought about it. The show of the creation, the cosmos is described. He says there, as he begins to answer Pritchard Marsh's question about the uh, nature of nature of the material world, Maya Shakti, how what. He wants to know something about it because he thinks that by knowing about it, it will better position him to know about and appreciate uh, its, its source, whom is non-different from it and so forth, as we heard the other day. So Sugade replies, well, as far as I can, I'll talk about it, but it's really something that's just a transformation of the lunas. It's like a magic show but I'll try to put it in words, and I'll use the words of the Puranic historians. that have talked about it thus far, so again, more Puranic kind of insights about the uh, cosmology, or well, origins to some extent, but the astronomy, I guess, and uh, description of the various locus and planets and so forth. Anyway, it culminates in a description of the hells, and and what we're to catch from that, of course, is Pritchard Marshall's reaction to the whole description. Because he's the one that asked about it for a reason, as I mentioned. And so when it's all over, he says, wow, this is like, that's pretty bad, those hells. That's what sticks out in his mind. He says, how can we save people from, from that? And then that's the sixth canto, the very then important uh, story of Ajayamil is given to emphasize and Kirtan and, and Nam Nam Seva and the point is of course by Nam Seva you can forget about these hells Ajayamil well, should have gone to hell but because he did Nam Seva then they had to no jurisdiction over him so the message of the Bhagavatam is people wonder are those hells real or not you know, Bhakti even though Thakur said maybe they were allegorical but you know, maybe we're just doing that for propaganda. We should take the bhagavatam as it is. And and then they have this very heavy kind of like, there are hells and people are going to go there. And in their opinion, half the devotees are there already. Um, but the message of the bhagavatam is that these aren't important. You can do nam kirtan bhakti and there's no hell for you. So we do away with the hells in the sixth canto that are brought up in the fifth canto. So that's a very important piano, the sixth piano. I, you know, we used to be a book distributor, and uh, they, BBT used to ask me what books I thought would they should print en masse, because we were printing Prabhupada's books as they came out. And um, those were mostly being distributed to the temples and to the devotees and some in the streets and so forth, but it was pretty wild to hand somebody, you know, Fifth Canto, part two, check it out, you know, start, <laughs> start here or, somewhere. you know, fourth Canto, part three or something. So uh, they wanted a strategy, you know, of books to print. So they asked me what books to print in mass, what I thought would be good. So I had suggested, I think, the first Canto, sixth Canto, Story of Ajah Meal. And um, I don't know, if I, I forget what else. Maybe the first and second canto. story. I know. I, anyway, I know I remembered that I, I mentioned the sixth canto with regard. I think it's the sixth canto, part one, in Prabhupada's edition. Now they have it all in one volume, the cantos. But they used to have several volumes for each canto, three or four hundred-page book for each each uh, volume. So they printed that in mass at, at that time. And then here's also the. Wonderful story of Chitraketu Maharaj there and the glory of Bhakti how the devotees, again, don't care for hell even if they did go. Narapabharga He was cursed by uh, Parvati and were laughing at Lord Shiva for having her on his, his lap. And so the story of Ritrasura comes there in relation to that, there's mention of Raga Bhakti from Britrasura, which is the birth of Chitraketu, and so forth. In the seventh canto, you have this largely dealing with uh, noticing hadev's appearance, which is significant in the ways in which we discussed the other day. Eighth canto, ninth canto, well, eighth canto is the creation story you find there. Kurma Avatar the Bandara mountain churning of the ocean of milk and all the wonderful things that come from that story of Gajendra, Gajendra Moksha, significant there. Ninth canto I think you have the description of Ramavatar at some length story of the is important. Um, Tenth canto of course, eleventh canto, twelfth canto, these are the afterthoughts we have the whole Uddhava Gita Eleventh canto said to be like Krishna's, the tenth canto is the smiling face of the Bhagavatam and the eleventh canto is like the intelligence of the Bhagavatam so it's quite heady here you have the whole Bhagavad Gita practically again spoken to Krishna, from Krishna to Uddhava in this case and then the twelfth canto is more or less well a little reflection back, glorification of the Bhagavatam Narayana, and and Rishis avatar is described there. So, so those are certain things that stick out to I me. Mean, you could go through and and uh, give the Bhagavat, you know, Sapta for seven days and, and emphasize a little bit more of those stories and their significance in relation to pure Bhakti. I guess I forgot the fourth Ganna. There's the Dhruvamara story. Very significant. Mahaprabhu would like to hear that story. And Prahlad Charit. The chapters on Prahlad Maharaj and Puri from Gadadhar Pandit. Hmm. So, they're basically, you're finding, a, a, as we heard, it's about bhakti. The second verse tells us it's about bhakti and ultimately, Prem. So, there's a weaving in and out of the Bhagavad Gita as to pure bhakti versus what's not pure bhakti and directly glorifying it indirectly directly glorifying bhakti, indirectly glorifying bhakti by speaking about that which is not bhakti and the consequence, the result of that, and so forth. There are certainly sections that are more important than others. Having said that, I would think that uh, the 11th canto is pretty important. The 10th canto, of course, is the, the 10th canto is the canto that's emphasized by um, the Gosamis when they say, there are five very potent things, forms of sadhana namkirtan, sadhusanga, bhagavat shravan, hearing the bhagavatam, and uh, worshipping the deity, living in a holy place. These things are very powerful. Rupa Goswami says in his explanation of sadhana bhakti, through where he goes through 64 limbs of angas of bhakti and so forth, he emphasizes these. One of them allow enough is alone is sufficient and so forth. So with regard to Bhagavad Shraban here in the Bhagavatam, I think Liji was something makes the to comment this means the tenth candle of the Bhagavatam. Prabhupada was very fond of saying you have to read all the nine candles and so forth. And there's a lot of good sense to that and so forth, but that is certainly the the main part and I suppose if the rest is well understood then would can venture there without any problem. Um, but I was talking with Brigu about this the other day and it's, it's a very formidable kind of a task or it's very uh, difficult to, when persons in today's society become interested to, and you start speaking about the Bhagavatam or from it and so forth, and they become interested to read the Bhagavatam. For me, at least, it's a bit of a quandary, like, oh, he wants to read the Bhagavatam. I'm supposed to give him like 30 volumes of the Bhagavatam. It's pretty hard to sort out. It really needs to be heard with good guidance and so forth. So the idea of writing on different sections of the Bhagavatam and, and, and publishing and making it more known and accessible, Uh, that uh, people should decide to take up the task of actually studying it at some length, they would have been already familiar with it enough to be able to find their way through it without being lost. And Proverbs edition is particularly easy to get lost in as to what the storyline is, at least. You get, like, each purport is like, oh, I'm going to think about that. and Next one, think about the points he's raising there. He doesn't write it in such a way as to connect it all very well. And that's not a fault. That's just the style that he's, you know, he, he adopted. So as a book, as a composite of a book with a storyline and plot, if you will, and characters and stories within stories and so forth, it would be interesting to do something. You might want to do something like that. And that sounds like something for you, graphic, you know. Did you ever do something like that? We, we did it. With the, we, we, did. With the, we never... I came around to finish it and it's a project where, like, I have in the back of my mind... Did you do Who Spoke to Who? and Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember so you started something like that. So that would be uh, useful and uh, useful for the devotees even. But, um, I know, mean, we're already familiar with the Bhagavatam to some extent. But it, it really, and the Goswamis have set this example, it needs to be written about. That's what they did. They wrote about the Bhagavatam. Basically, all their books are extensions of the Bhagavatam, their Lila Katha, and so forth. And so, to write about the Bhagavatam more directly, some I mean, are writing not directly about the Bhagavatam, inspired by the Bhagavatam, based on the philosophy of the Bhagavatam, I mean to say. But um, yeah, that would be useful. So, even kind of kind of an overview, telling the story and going through the characters and the stories within the stories and. Just bringing out the way the questions answered without all the collateral verses and so forth which are valuable in and of themselves and wonderful, but that would be kind of useful. I think it would could make for compelling reading. I don't know, they certainly got the Bible read quite a bit, huh? Did you ever read the Bible?
1: anybody did you ever read
0: the Bible? Yeah. Have you? Have you read it? What
1: about you? Yeah, I of Sunday School. Mm.
0: I never read it. it. Certainly has been well read. So and I just think of it in relation to Bhagavatam to popularize the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam must be quite a bit longer than the Bible, huh? or no? Mm-hmm. How long is the Bible? How many verses do you know?
1: I'm not sure, actually. But
0: and it tends to be published without any commentary.
1: That's true, yeah. Uh, maybe I was thinking quickly about all the commentaries in the back. Um, maybe yeah, I wonder, of with the commentary, because the Bible is printed on a special paper that's mm-hmm. not used for anything else. Yeah, really it's didn't. a super thing. It's yeah. even called Bible paper. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if the Bible would be
0: compressed like that so what else another question
3: uh, it is destined that we will be attracted to our particular Vaishnava lineage Gaudiya, Shri, etc because that is an indication of our original service mood and destination or home for example Gaudiya go to Goloka Vaish Shri go to Vaikuntha or it is just uh, by chance and whatever Vaishnava we need that is the lineage that we follow.
0: We cannot say that the way in which Krishna, the all knowing, will accept service from us and and experience himself through us in Leela is unknown to him cannot make that statement that is unknown to him. And thus you can say that it's a destiny in that sense. At the same time, our entrance into bhakti, the possibility of, of this, is said to be bhagya, fortune, grace. And what does fortune, good fortune mean? Luck. What does luck mean in the Bhagavad school? Luck means sadhu sangha. Luck means there's no reason, just, well, you got lucky, right? And so the sadhus are traveling in the world not under the influence of cause and effect or karma. So we say that our chance to take part in bhakti is, is our good fortune because we met a sadhu. There's no reason for it. There's nothing we did that caused it or it's not within the realm of karma. It comes from outside. The sadhu is the Asian of that. So coming in touch with the sadhu creates our good fortune and bhakti is a grace. It's not a right, it's a gift. So when we talk about it from that perspective, it's a gift The opportunity for that is created by the sadhu. We meet a particular sadhu and we're influenced by that sadhu and so forth. And so then it starts to sound like the other way around. She said, is it a destiny that it's already worked out? Or is it good fortune created by the sadhu who carries a particular sentiment, bhava? And so we connect with the Ramanuja, a charger and he has the bhava for reverential love therefore we we go there because it's it's then it's thought of as a as a result at all if at all result it's it's a it's a result of association it becomes possible by association someone has it they give it to you and so forth so you know, we can think about it in different ways but if we think about it that way we also have to think about the fact that that devotees do meet sadhus from particular lineages who carry a particular bhava but they don't develop that bhava and sometimes they even go to other lineages like Baladi Vidyabhushan was in the Madhva lineage and he went to the Gaudiya lineage you understand? so that leads us to believe that there's a destiny involved here and uh, as I say how Krishna wants to relate to us, we can I say he's not, he's not aware of that. How he wants to accept service from soul, he's not aware of that. It exists somewhere in the mind of God, something like that. So, in time, you'll get a fit with an agent that fits with you. There may be different agents that come in the course of that as well. One may hand you to another... Like Prabhupada, for example, he did very wide canvassing, huge campaign, recruiting. And if we study his his campaign, he was recruiting for the Sampradaya in general and for bhakti, even beyond the Sampradaya. And we find, practically speaking, that some of his students joined his campaign and they Ended up becoming attracted to other sampradayas, like I know some who became attracted to the Ramanuja lineage and those ideas and so forth. And within the Gaudiya, different different ideas as well. So so some people may be collected by Prabhupada and then they may be placed somewhere else. Rather than his, he has his own particular group also. Meanwhile, he's canvassing in a big way for the sampradayas. Somebody else may canvass just for their group. That's also possible. More specifically, so at any rate, at some point we we'll make a connection with the Sadhu that delivers us to our destiny, if we will. And the experience will be like, like both, like choosing and like it was meant to happen. It'll be both. Generally, again, like if we, if we say, well, the devotee has a particular destiny, and therefore. He or she meets a particular lineage that corresponds with that destiny, and therefore they go. That um, brings up the question why sometimes they meet with other sampradayas, and then they change sampradayas, and so forth. So it's a question that's, uh, I would say, by the Goswamis, usually answered that, overtly answered that association. By association with someone who has bhava, you get the bhava. You get lucky, you get the good fortune. But it's not something that's created by the guru, obviously, because that bhava is something that's eternally existing. It's represented in them and in contact with it, it the ingress comes within us and, and so forth. That's kind of the general answer. But, as I say, what seems to go against that is the fact that devotees do contact lineages or sadhus in certain bhavas and get their entrance into bhakti there, but find their their destiny, if you will, elsewhere. So, given that, the idea is that without the association it's not possible. Therefore, sometimes we'll emphasize because of association. But when we notice at the same time that despite association with a particular mood, a who the sadhu you know, who has that particular mood, devotees in the sect develop a different sentiment. We find that happening here and there. Then we have to say that, oh, it's not simply a product of association, but in somewhere in the mind of Krishna, how we will associate with him, how he will accept service from us and play himself out through us in leela and experience himself as known to him. And the paramparas and arrangement before that and it may we may cross even different paramparas or over different lifetimes to find that Does that answer yeah it's a complex question and then you'll find someone will emphasize it's it's a result of sadhu sangha. not a result not that it's like a karmic result but but by sadhu sangha you, you, you get that as if it's that's it's it's genesis and it is the genesis in you. It's the it's the point where it's it's yeah, that destiny, if you will, starts to unfold in a way that it would not otherwise. So it's entirely dependent upon that. Even though it may exist in the mind of Krishna, it's not going to happen without Sadasangha. Therefore the emphasis on Sadasangha as if Sadasangha itself is the genesis of it. But again, In the context of Sadasanga, we find people developing a different sentiment, which then said, well, how, there's there's something more nuanced here. Therefore, we think ultimately there's a, there's a, there's a destiny. Then there's the experience as if one is choosing, but the experience is a choice that is also feels like going home. The feeling is, Smarnam is like, we call it remembering because it's like remembering because you're coming close to what you are in all your potential it doesn't feel foreign or alien although you've never been there before it's not foreign it's not alien you feel at home it's like remembering oh this is natural for me like like a deja vu although you've never been there before something like that So, um, we don't say that the sarup shakti is inherent in the jiva, but we say (laughs) the potential to take advantage of the influence of sarup shakti is there in the jiva. Bhakti Vinod describes the jiva as a partial manifestation of sarup shakti and the maya shakti as a distorted manifestation of sarup shakti. So in maya shakti you have asat, achit, nirananda. In the jiva you have satchit ananda, anu in a small way. And in Bhagavan in, in you have some, Sandini, Sambit, some Ladini. That is shared then with the Satchitananda. Mm-hmm. And the Satchitananda can take advantage of it, whereas Asat, Atchit, Nirananda, Shakti cannot. So it has more likeness to you. Sandini has more likeness to Sat than it does to Asat. Ladini has more likeness to Ananda than Nirananda and so forth. So that's kind of a big, um, kind, of kind of a big debate in a way. I mean, the the devotees will, t- Acharya's will talk about it in in different ways. And then with the emphasis on sadhu almost to the point where it's like the guru creates the bhava. And then, you know, this siddhadeha selling business that went on for and still goes on in order to get chapatis, then I'm going to sell you a siddha day. It's not built like that, but that's a lot of that goes on. And the idea is, without associating with me or somebody like me and getting your your siddha day, it's, you're not going to get there. So you become a student. I give you this almost as if the guru is manufacturing it. So there's a, one can emphasize that it's a result of sadhusanga to the point of being in, 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 in air. in error. And then as a corrective to that, someone like Bhakti Vinod Thakur, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati will emphasize, hey, these guys aren't giving you anything here. Forget that. It's inside you. And it will come out by hearing you chanting. They'll emphasize that side, the predestined kind of, uh, perspective. And then that may be emphasized to the point of a fault also. It's already there. The fault that it goes and it's already there, who needs a guru? Why do we need gurus? We just hear and chant and it'll come out and, and so forth and they do away with the So One emphasis, over-emphasis, leads in a phony kind of a parampara a sham of a parampara. The other emphasis ends up in doing away with the parampara and the need for sadhusanga, and people develop a sangskara for... Offending advanced devotees and and got a, a kind of like a very not very good reason, but a poorly reasoned ruled kind of life, rather than a sense of a grace ruled life and growth being a result of of sangha. They think more of growth in terms of renunciation or something like that, which is that is not what bhakti is about. It's a result of sangha. So I've seen the errors if you will, on both sides, due to overemphasis on either the predestined idea as opposed to the product of association idea. But the product of association idea falls short in that we find, for example, let's take the example of uh, Anupam, brother of Rupsanatan. Despite their association... He chose Ram Bhakti. He could not give up Ram Bhakti. So, someone say, Well, he's a Nitya Siddha, and that's why. Who says that he's a Nitya Siddha? Where does it say that? And there are other examples, too. There are other examples in the Sampradaya of um, devotees finding affinity for different sentiments than that which is the sentiment of their guru, there are such... That may be the general rule we find, but there are are enough exceptions to then cause us to nuance the idea that it's a result of association and start to move in the direction of the idea that there's some destiny involved there. Again, when we overemphasize the destiny part, then it's like you end up with... The person making the argument that the sarupa Shakti is inside the Jeev Shakti. Bhakti Vinod walked the tightrope by saying the Jeev Shakti is a partial manifestation of sarupa Shakti, which is the original Shakti. Like Prabhupada gave the example, when shakti, it's one Shakti, when, when functioning in one way it heats, the other way it lights, that means, or, or cools, excuse me, the way it heats. The Same energy working there, like cool. So you have the Swarup Shakti and the Maya Shakti. They're related. Do we think that the Jiva Shakti is just kind of like it's a Shakti Tatva, but it has no connection with the primal Shakti, like the Maya Shakti does? Just out there. Radhika is the Swayam Shakti. So, without even reason, this Jiva Shakti also has some connection. With Sarup Shakti we find the trace elements of Sandini, Samvid and Ladini in the Jiva in Satschit Ananda in small portion, very small portion. And because of that, it has the capacity in conjunction with good association with the Sarup Shakti through Bhakti, which comes through the Guru Parampara, to imbibe the ingress of Sarup Shakti and function in the in the lila and of course the swarup is of swarup shakti but again what way in which we'll function there we cannot say we can't say it's it's in you in a sense that will bring up a philosophical problem is that swarup shakti is inside the jiva shakti so bhakti nottaka walked like i say a tightrope there and he said there's a trace, trace elements which gives you the potential now So you have association, you have the potential with a good association, those two in place. But in spite of the potential and the good association, you find that sometimes a different bhava is awakened, uh, one becomes attracted to them, that which the association is absorbed in. So you can say, perhaps, Krishna has a plan. In that sense, there's some some destiny to it. You cannot argue that away as I said in the mind of Krishna you cannot say it. it is unknown to him how he would he will ultimately associate with him in love and brain so that's my answer it's a little complex any other comments on that or questions? I
1: have an unrelated question if no one else does
0: well let's let this digest a little bit here it's a big topic yeah
1: we very
3: open and speaking about philosophy trying to understand many things trying to remember many many verses to have focus for the verses yeah. it's really nice to know that our philosophy to remember verses despite of preaching or is it just power and develop love or just is enough to chant just remember Krishna's pastimes.
0: What we find is it's just enough to chant and remember Krishna's pastimes, but people can't do that. Therefore, they need philosophy. I was giving a philosophical discourse, and one fellow said, "Marshal, this philosophy—whatever happened is just chant, just chanting." I said, "You tell me what happened. Why don't you just chant? You don't do that. You're here, there, and everywhere. You need philosophy." Without Sambandhagyan, it will be very difficult to progress simply by chanting. And we find people like that in India. They don't have any Sambandhagyan. What is the chanting? What is pure bhakti? They go to the temple every day. They chant. But they don't know the difference between Shiva and Vishnu and Mahavad and this vod and that vod. They don't know the difference. They become religious people only. You don't make spiritual progress, to speak of. So that, again, that conceptual orientation is important. But it's important to a point. I mean, it depends upon your intellectual aptitude and capacity and so forth. So, so therefore, to the extent that your intellectual aptitude is not very great, which would be great for most people, because well, it can be a big burden, then you just attach yourself to a person who knows the philosophy like blue, <laughs> then that's the other form of the Bhagavat, right? The person Bhagavat and the book Bhagavat. So you have to serve the Bhagavat regularly, which generally it's taken to mean to study the Bhagavatam regularly, daily. Nasta praeshu nityam Bhagavat seva, always nityam Bhagavat seva, doing Bhagavat seva. So Bhagavat seva means to study the Bhagavatam and that should be done under the guidance of the Guru course, the person Bhagavatam. Or if you don't have that much aptitude for, for studying the Bhagavatam, then you serve the person Bhagavatam. But overall, Sambandagyana on some level is important. What happens then if your, your, your guru leaves the world and then somebody else comes along and says, this is what Gaudi philosophy is. And then it sounds different, but you can't say why. You don't know if it's right or not. Or, It's good to know something, huh? Bhakti Rasa Sindhu teaches that our capacity to tread the path, our eligibility, adikar, for treading the path, is based on faith. But there are different kinds of faith. Tender faith, and then there is firm faith, and then there is very well-informed faith, that means faith that's well informed by the scriptural argument knowing that one has the is the best situated for treading the path uttam adhikari he has eligibility of the highest nature to tread the path if you know what you're doing you're going to get more out of it the book is telling you what bhakti is what the prayojan is and so forth explaining all these things and they, with good with good reasoning and it kind of tends to corner one and make it difficult to, to go, go elsewhere. So, better understanding of what you're doing helps you to do it. But again, not everybody will have the same intellectual capacity, so we're not here to make everybody a philosopher. But questions come, just like this young lady's asked a question. Should we just say, oh, that's not important to know so much? From. That's, a, that's, that's a pretty abstract question, just generate Krishna. Will that make her question go away? The question does arise in someone. So someone should have the answer. right? And that's a person that we, we tend to like to hang out with. So I guess having the knowledge and philosophy is pretty good. We find it desirable ourselves, although we might not want to do the work <laughs> to uh, become such a person ourselves. <laughs> but it certainly has value. I once heard uh, Govindamarsh give a lecture it was quite a long time ago, and he was speaking about how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, this is a public uh, forum, speaking how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was told by his guru don't study Vedanta. Uh, he gave him the mantra, the Krishna mantra, and then that drove him mad and so forth. And so he emphasized not to study. And then he was telling the story, and he was quoting so many verses and so forth, and all making this point that you don't need to study. And I was looking and thought, well, he sure knows a lot of verses. <laughs> That's the message, you know, that people should be getting, but they get the message, yeah, you don't have to study. Yeah, Drip Reimer is just intellectual trying to, you know, barge into the spirits, the academic, bah, you know, they go, <laughs> the say that kind of stuff sometimes. It's just academics, that's all. There's this anti-intellectual kind of a current sometimes out there. But the Bhagavatam tells us that we should use our... That's what Nastapraeshu Abhadrishunyati Bhagavad says, that means you have to use your intelligence fully. Is that not to be used? Is that the part that's not? That's must be harnessed, It should be used. And when we use it, then questions come to the fore, and then if we're in touch with uh, someone who has the of the highest eligibility to tread the path and is well versed, Nipun. Then um, we get answers that free us to go forward on the path. Doubt causes some hesitation, right? Suspicion leads to suspension. So the guru is for freeing us from those blocks of suspended animation as a result of our, our doubt. So we need to voice it somewhere. So it's valuable if someone has that knowledge. So that knowledge, that philosophy, is, we acknowledge that it's important. Even when we say, I don't want to bother to do it, that's just laziness then. Again, not that everyone will be a scholar, but you have to use your intelligence. Bhagavatam wants to tax your intelligence entirely. And this was much the mood of in his outreach program, which taxes your intelligence. And if you think how to preach to intelligent people, it's going to tax it that much more. And nowadays, a lot of devotees don't want to preach to educated people because it's too taxing. They just want to be fanatics and, you know, say something that, that less intelligent people are going to accept. Because it's not very well thought out. And then you've got a whole group of uneducated, less intelligent people that they're devotees of some sort, but then they end up distorting the philosophy. It shouldn't be put in the hands of the sutra. Not everyone's supposed to read the books. That'll be a revolutionary statement if it gets out, huh? That's true. And we see evidence of it. At least not without guidance. Not without someone to tell you, no, you read that wrong. So just get behind a keyboard and quote, Haranyakasipu said this, and you know. And it's, it's pathetic. It's evidence of the fact that not everyone's supposed to. Some people can read the books and actually associate with, this, with the essence of it, the people inside and so forth. Not everybody can do that. They should associate with somebody who can. So, philosophy is important. I mean, we can see so many devotees had a sentiment for Prabhupada. That was good. But he used to emphasize the philosophy. And he used to say philosophy, sentiment without philosophy is fanaticism. Have you seen any religious fanaticism out there in the dress of Gaudi Vaishnavism? It's quite a bit of it, and Prabhupada's disciples are leading, the, leading the are in the front lines. And then you know, and learn philosophy. You can also learn a whole bunch of verses and be, be the worst fanatic. That's also quite possible. So what does it mean to learn the philosophy? They learn the spirit behind it, and it takes time, but it's important. So the sentiment is, is good, but it has to be in, in concert with the, with the philosophy. Then the sentiment and different sentiments become beautiful. If the bade, the difference, is one, it's Gaudiya Siddhanta, different tastes, different flavors of that, different flavors of how to do outreach, how to serve, and ultimately how to love Krishna that's beautiful but when it, when the differences become differences from the philosophy then the differences don't become ornaments and they become faults I mean we could just get together here and just chant for a few days and not have any philosophy I suppose probably even less people would come <laughs> I was in Hawaii once and a guy said, you know, I gave a talk and he said, oh, it's some philosophy. But we like to, we like to chant here. We like to do like, you know, all night kirtans. <laughs> I just laughed. They're smoking and chanting. So you know, they all the night kirtans of Hawaii. For the most part, smoking ganja and chanting all night. Kirtan is popular. That's good and that's bad. As soon as it becomes popular, you know it's going to be problematic. And it becomes in a form of entertainment online, isn't it? It's a form of entertainment. Famous kirtaneers going here and there. Professional kirtan. Prabhupada was very strictly against professional kirtan. People are proud now of being professional kirtaneers. Bengal was full of, full of them. They make your Kirton parties, you know, today look silly. You go there. Just to hear their music you cry, even if this all oh, they got the wrong thing in their heart. Playing Esaraj, you know, or the harmonium. You know, and they're just you know, they got a sung scar for it for, for lifetimes. The bowls and you know, hear them sing. That's <laughs> incredible. Get you on know, get on the train, you know, the bowl and the bowl comes on. He just has his little stringed instrument starts singing and everybody's like weeping, you know. It's material, but it's powerful. These are professional kirtaners. They started a, a, um, in this gone one year a kirtan competition to be held in Mayapur. I don't remember if Prabhupada was still there or not. I kind of no, he wasn't there. And then they and then they invited different professional groups and so forth from Bengal and. Agni Dave won the competition, incidentally. But um, his 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 group from Laguna Beach and all but but uh, there's a lot of that. Now, you know, it, it's it seem maybe seem harmless and even good. And you know, I can go on that side a little bit too, but it can very much largely become just a form of entertainment for people. And as much as probably was against the Leela dramas that would be just entertainment, you know. They'll have in the Vrindavan, the Leela Dramas, and they'll have a carnival too, you know, the Paris Wheel and Cotton Candy, and just a night out or three nights out, you know, what to do. I mean, it's it's nice compared to maybe what other forms of entertainment people choose, but its capacity to change one's heart is uh, very limited. So, therefore, Bhakti Natako would say, don't enter the kirtan, that's not being conducted under the auspices of a Vasudha Bhakta person Bhagavatam and he or she naturally speaks about the Bhagavatam so so we learn the philosophy it's important but again we may it may be challenged intellectually and that's not a bad thing the way we should react to that of course is to serve in other ways than intellectually, having taxed our intelligence to its limit as well. Bhakti Pramod Purimaraj once told us that a man came to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, I think a wealthy kind of businessman or royalty or government official, something like that, and he said, I want to hear the essence of Srimad Bhagavatam from you. If you want to understand the bhagavatam, talk to the gardener, he's over there. And Pramod Purimar said he did it without any cynicism, he really meant it. it was one of his disciples who was a gardener, all he did was the gardening. But Bhakti Sen, Thakur had concluded that this person has understood the bhagavatam. He probably couldn't quote a verse, so that's also there, <laughs> that side. It's hard to get a straight answer from me, isn't it? <laughs> a dozen different ways to look at it. Yeah.
3: Three
0: kinds of false ego. False yes. ego. Uh huh. It means that there's false ego in Thomas, Rajas, and Sattva something like that, uh, which then forms mind, intelligence, and senses, Radhas and Thomas and the influence of time. It's about the unfolding or the emanating of the world, if you will. Which yoga is supposed to, like, shh, contract, like a spider brings the web back. So there's only you left. What else?
1: Um, I had a uh, last bit of com- confusion on the question they asked yesterday. Um, in particular, uh, I ha- I'm having trouble understanding um, Narayan in relation to Krishna. And again, yesterday, um, we, I mentioned a thing, how we talked about in the morning, the three faces of God, uh, personalities of God, Krishna, and Srinadeva, and Ram, that are full in all six opulences. And so the confusion I'm having is...
0: That doesn't mean Narayan doesn't have full opulences.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm...
0: When we talk about that, we mean avatars. Mm-hmm. So, Ram avatar, string avatar, and Krishna appears as an avatar, although he's avatari. It doesn't mean Narayan doesn't have all six opulences. He's Bhagwan.
1: Okay. So, it's like when they come as an avatar, when Krishna comes as an avatar, he is Krishna, he's not an avatar of Narayana, he's the full...
0: Krishna appears as an avatar of Narayan, but he is actually the avatari. Uh-huh. So he comes in a conventional way, because all the descents of Bhagwan in the world come through through Vishnu, but he's avatari. So, but yeah, Narayan is sadashwari Purna, full of six opulences. He's Bhagwan, but Krishna is more full, and he has qualities that Narayan doesn't have, like surrounded by devotees endowed with extraordinary praying and his form is particularly special and his flute so forth. There's five of them. Venu madurja, Lila Madhurgya, Rupa madurja. What else? There's two more. Uh, I forget. But anyway, he's has qualities that that are not found in Narayan. Sweetness. Madhurya means sweetness. Sweet flute. Sweet Leela Madhurya. Prema Madhurya. He's surrounded with devotees with, with extraordinary Prem. Sweet Prem. Sweet Lila. He has a flute. Narayan doesn't play the flute. That's sweet. And uh, Rupa Madhurya. His form is particularly sweet and charming, human like as it is. Is it four qualities or five?
1: I think it was four, si- 64 and the other one was
0: uh-huh. 60. Uh, 64, so there I said the Rupa Madhurya, Lila Madhurya, Prema Madhurya, Venu Madhurya. Flute is sweet because that's how he attracts the gopis. Ultimately, That's why he's playing that. And he only has two hands, and it takes two hands to play the flute. So his implications, he's fully consumed in that. If he had forearms, he could be doing something else at the same time. But he doesn't do something else at the same time. He only does... He's only living for that. So they What else? Yes. I was talking with the He
1: mentioned a book that... And been published by a Swedish ex devotee about his about the abuse he had experienced in the, in the movement. And my instant reaction to reading books like that has always been that it's a waste of time in a life that's too busy to even concentrate on reading the shastra. But he felt that it's important for us to to be aware of the injustices that have been done because of maybe fanatic mm-hmm. and so that we can avoid such things in the future and also so that we can defend maybe still defend the philosophy to people who will come and accuse us of supporting a movement that's so close to another movement where these problems have occurred so how do you feel about it?
0: Uh, He he was in another movement from the one that he left, and he was writing a book about the injustices of the previous movement.
1: I don't think this person who wrote the book actually is a devotee anymore, but I was talking with the devotee who had read the
0: book. Oh, and he found value in reading the book. Because it made him aware of injustices that other people might be aware of and bring up, unless he was prepared to talk about them. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't find it very interesting. (laughs) And uh, there are injustices everywhere. I think it gets highlighted perhaps in a spiritual movement because of the mistaken idea that by joining a spiritual movement, you're joining something that's perfect, you're joining something that's extending you the opportunity to attain perfection in a way that no one else offers you that opportunity. Everyone is offering you some opportunity to perfect yourself in some field, whether it be neuroscience, carpentry, or Godi Vaishnavism. And in, the difference, I suppose, is this is the, can build as the ultimate perfection. But it's only as such to those who feel that it is. Carpenters might not think it at any value, value at all. Of course, I suppose people enter it more with their whole life than they do, you know, another field of study and attempt to perfect themselves. So they, they feel more justified, I suppose, in, in highlighting injustices that may have occurred in a mission that is uh, offering that type of opportunity to attain perfection there's more outrage, I suppose, when things that happen everywhere happen in a spiritual movement. Leaders, you know, corporate leaders cheat people. Well, they do. that. That's quite an outrage about that because it's about money. They go to jail and stuff. But at any anyway, rate, I think that, that the problems that you'll find in a spiritual sect are problems that you'll find anywhere and everywhere. They're human problems. We shouldn't be so naive as to think that human problems are going to go away because humans decide to take up bhakti and pursue spiritual perfection. Human problems are going to be there and they're going to loom as large, maybe if not larger, there. Only because, larger because of our unrealistic expectations. And so when it People complain that yeah, I went she went to the spiritual sect and found out that there were a lot of human beings there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's basically what the book is those books are saying. I mean, it's like what like what's new about that? What did you expect to find there? Of course you do expect to find a leader, I suppose that's ideal. And there may be misrepresentation in that regard, that happens. But again, as much as there is misrepresentation, they're only misrepresenting something that actually exists. So if you're really interested in it, then you go and find it where you can find it. You search out where it's not being misrepresented. So the persons who lose interest in bhakti because of those things have a peripheral interest, usually in, in bhakti. Or they may make some offense, as well, in the course of highlighting all of these injustices and, and so forth. Yeah, the, the social justice. I mean, fair, we want a, a, a sect to be upright and, and have integrity and so forth. We, we want that, we expect that. But we should also expect, as I said, that you join a sect full of human beings with high ideals it falls a little short, as I say. When, the lead, when and if the leader who was thought to be above such proves herself not to be, then that's a bigger problem, obviously. But, but again, misrepresentation speaks to us about representation. There must be a real thing somewhere, and if we are interested in that, convinced of that, then we should pursue it. What's your alternative? I mean, I always kind of like look at the very basics. You know, there's really some basic logic here that's involved beyond the theology. There's a difference between consciousness and matter, and your consciousness not matter. You're now oppressed by mind and senses. You do things that aren't in your own interest. Materially even, let speak spiritually. So you, what is your alternate to spiritual practice is... It's not really bright. I mean, that's, there's not a bright alternative, so there may be a rough course sometimes. It may be a rough course. We may have to undergo some abuse, even if it's possible. I know I have lots of it, lots of abuse in the hands of devotees. So, I think, you know, that uh, that's a thoughtful person will understand from the start this I, I'm doing something here that's I'm going against the grain of the world, so the world's not going to just love me for it. And the world's in lots of people who are doing this too, and who are pursuing this path, so it's going to show up. So, the way you presented it, when someone read the book and thought it had value, because then he was informed of all the abuses and he could speak about them, but, I mean, if someone just came up and said, I heard this happened in your group, you could say, "Well, that's too bad that we don't do." I don't do that, but maybe that happened, and this is what we teach. You have to know all the details. Wait till people bring it up to you. What if they do, so we don't teach that. Somebody may do that, but we don't teach that. That's not what we teach. Do you want to know what we do, or what we teach, or what some people do, and what we teach? Those books are written to, in such a way as, as, as to highlight. Things that would keep people away from the sect, usually without sufficient balance. And how can you have balance when you, you want to highlight those things? Those are the things that people are like more interested in. Ah, oh, the sect did that. Let's read about it. Catholic priests do this. Everybody's reading it. If the Catholic priests say, you know, something about you know the nature of God, well, no, nobody's going to read it. But if there's a scandal in the Catholic Church, it's on the headlines, right? Vatican's doing things all the time. Only when they issue some mandate or something that goes against what's politically correct and so forth does it get read about and become of interest. So how are you going to create spiritual interest in people by highlighting something that a spiritual, a Godia sect, has? things that have been found in it that aren't uh, supposed to be there. Better to highlight what the ideal is. And then if people find something other than the ideal here and there, then you deal with that with them individually. And That's what would be my approach. I don't think those books have value. And they're written by people, ex-devotees usually, who are just trying to be honest That's the way it's portrayed. And... But, I mean, then again, is the philosophy right? Or I mean, what are they saying? If, if the philosophy is correct, if you're not the body, let's get real basic about it then, then how honest are you? You know, somebody, I went to this sect that taught we were not the body and I found out that there were these human rights issues. I mean, it's kind of unrelated. It's, of course, I sympathize, people want a good example. Example speaks louder than precept, so that's true. Usually those books are like a, you know, they're a, they're a justification for, for the author for leaving and maybe a money-making idea as well. I don't find them valuable. I never read any of those books. They seem to just so much scratch the surface, and miss the point. And they're thinking, they're sounding very profound and really self-searching and so forth. And so I'm thinking, oh, this is oh, it's kind of, I mean, I haven't read any, but I read about some of them. One guy in particular I know, a god brother of mine, was one of the first persons to write such like testimony, you know, coming out and of the sect and so forth. And I heard some of the things that I think I maybe read some articles they wrote. And I thought, oh, God, he just didn't understand the basics of spiritual life. That is what it says to me. It doesn't understand the very basics of the philosophy. What can I do? <laughs> That's my opinion. What else? Yes.
2: Uh, Lumos, I was thinking about uh, after your previous lectures here about accessibility to the the highest meaning, deepest best meaning, Shiva Bhagavata because the whole Shema is about Krishna, Krishna is everywhere mentioned that. But then you said that uh, Lord Chaitanya is only mentioned once, and it was only discovered by Saratanda's family to find him in there. And at the same time it looks like we can't properly understand Bhagavatam without Lord Chaitanya. And so I was thinking that when Gyasadeva was disappointed what he wrote before and then he wrote the uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, there is still uh, the, uh, the deepest meaning of Srimad Bhagavatam is still not maybe not so widely accessible or maybe is still hidden because not many people have, uh, they may have uh, faith in Krishna but it may be very difficult for them to have faith in Lord Chaitanya because he's not so. Mentioned some many times in other scriptures. So I was thinking that it's still like a kind of secret in Shimabhagavatam, it's not uh, so easy for other people to get to this deepest meaning. And if they can't get to this deepest meaning, what, what is their uh, perception of Shimabhagavatam?
0: What is their perception?
2: Yes, because we have, because we are Varshala, so we have a, a different. You look at it from a different view, from through Chaitanya from and um, some other people, some other Vaishnavas, they don't have this possibility.
0: Well, yeah, they, they, they speak about Vaishnavism from their perspective, which is a valid perspective. For example, they may speak about it from a Vaikuntha perspective. Bhagavatam is not speaking about the Absolute from the Vaikuntha perspective, but rather from the, from the Brajloka perspective. Therefore they don't find it as, as, of as much interest to them. And they will look at it in light of their angle of vision, their perspective. And therefore it will not take as, have as much significance for them. Like the Ramanujas, their main book is the Padma Purana. And they'll also emphasize the Upanishads more. So that serves their purpose, which is a good purpose. Reverential love of God, Vaidya Bhakti, and so forth. So, the fact that the Bhagavatam brings out the highest ideas and possibilities, spiritual possibilities, doesn't change, but the extent to which people might be interested in that is still uh, a question. Now with the appearance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu from within the pages of Bhagavatam into the world, the phenomenon of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the, the existential crisis of Krishna, it's found in the apex of the Bhagavatam that has its manifestation in this world, that's so extraordinary that it creates interest in something that Krishna himself says most people aren't interested in, me and what makes me take what I'm all about, my inner life and so forth. So um, anyway, other... Sampradayas, they have different angles of vision about the Bhagavatam. They respect it to different extents and so forth. They don't disrespect it. Balaba wrote a commentary on it, so the Balabas have a much appreciation what he cites it in his Vedanta Sutra commentary. Dimbarkas like the Bhagavatam also. But these are both Ragmarks and Pradayas. But they don't bring out the special position of, of Radha or of Parakya. Balabas don't bring out the position of Varada, and the Bhargis don't bring out the speciality of Parakya. So, in a way, you can say the Bhagavatam is manifest from Vyas at the end of the previous Yuga, for Kali Yuga, and in Kali Yuga, great speakers have come representing Bhakti. Ramanuja, Madhva, and so forth. Nimbarka, Vishnu Swami. And the main event is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance in his speaking. They're all saying something is valuable. He's the main speaker for Kali Yuga, and the Bhagavatam says that itself. Krishna Varnam, tisakrishnam. So it's kind of like out there, and then the book, and then, then the person who will speak about it and explain it, and who it's all about will also be coming for the book signing. And in the meantime, we have some preliminary speakers. To keep you touring with the main band. You know, we have some other bands that are gonna entertain you until the main group comes on the stage. So that's the way we look at it. Does that help? All right, so let's stop there.